Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Happy New Year, everyone. And if you are listening to this and it's not New Year's, I still wish you 365 days of continuous success. This will be an excellent episode to start the new year, but before we do, let me throw in a pitch for the Association of Commercial Professionals Life Sciences. The ACPLS is how I met today's guest and many others. They're kind enough to sponsor this podcast, and I'm happy to be associated with them because it's the only association specifically for life science marketing and sales professionals to improve their market understanding develop their competence, and connect to share ideas with their peers. Check them out at acp-ls.org. Okay, today we're talking about owning the buyer's journey. So let's jump into it, shall we? Today I'm talking with Andy Bertera. He is the Executive Director of Marketing at New England Biolabs. (laughs) No one ever comes to our door. <laughs> no worries. Can you hold for a minute? I certainly can. You should okay. leave that in though. That's fun. Yeah. UPS for my neighbor. And the dog's doing a good job by sound of things too. Yeah, she sleeps all day long, but yeah, <laughs> the one thing. All right, I'm going to start over. No problem. Hello everyone. Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio again. Today my guest is Andy Bertera. Andy is the executive director of marketing at New England Biolab. And today, we're going to talk about owning the buyer's journey. So first of all, I found out right recently, I didn't know this, many of you probably do, NEB is rated very highly for its customer experience. And before we get into the details about the customer journey, Andy, tell us, um, tell us briefly about the culture behind that achievement. Well, firstly, before I uh, answer your question, uh, Chris, I want to congratulate you on Life Science Marketing Radio. I certainly get huge amounts of uh, value and enjoyment out of listening to uh, all of the uh, podcasts and the various guests that uh, uh, you've had on so far and feel uh, honored to be asked to uh, uh, join that uh, list of, uh, of speakers. Um, to answer your question, the best way probably is to give you a little bit of background to New England Biolabs. So any of the listeners who don't know, uh, New England Biolabs is a uh, what 42-year-old private uh, life science tools company. Um, our uh, uh, research director describes our product portfolio the best, uh, particularly for uh, non-scientists, as uh, he describes us as the staples of uh, life science research. What he means by that is we sell the scissors, the restriction enzymes, the glue, the ligases, as well as the photocopiers, the uh, polymerases of DNA. So we have a portfolio of products that... Uh, uh, manipulate uh, DNA and RNA in various ways and get used in a variety of different applications from genome editing, synthetic biology, next-gen sequencing, etc. But those products really don't really tell you much about NEB. You know, uh, obviously, there's lots of companies out there in the same space that sell similar uh, types of products. But to understand NEB and how we think about our customers, you really got to think about uh, how we were founded and how we, oper- how we operate today. 
in many ways, we're more like a research institute and perhaps even more like our customers than uh, many of our sort of uh, uh, competing companies. Uh, we actually use a substantial amount of the profits that we actually generate uh, in uh, our own sort of research endeavors. And research endeavors here really means basic research. This would be best uh, exampled by our parasitology division, where we actually have a group of researchers uh, looking into uh, the uh, molecular basis and cellular basis of diseases uh, in the third world that are caused by uh, parasites, things like uh, river blindness, uh, sleeping sickness, elephantitis, uh, and the like. And uh, that uh, sort of research has no commercial gain for us. It's really just trying to understand Understand those diseases such that uh, other researchers can then go on and hopefully kind uh, cures for those uh, particular diseases, which uh, you know plague many different uh, groups of uh, individuals in that third world. I think what that uh, sort of mentality and that focus on research gives us is a greater understanding of uh, what our customers uh, are sort of facing on a daily basis and uh, if you like a, a way of working with them that is very different to many of our competitors. The, the other aspect I would highlight uh, that really allows us to do that is the people. Uh, we very often describe NEB as a sort of family company, and certainly uh, the founder of the company and his family are still involved uh, uh, with the company. But we really think about all the staff as, uh, as almost family. Uh, you know, and as with everybody's family, you've got that uh, odd aunt or uncle who perhaps uh, you don't always agree with what they say or what they do, but they're still part of your family and you care for them. And certainly we see that in amongst our staff that people do genuinely care for each other. And I think that translate then across to their colleagues in research where, who we also, you know, care for and try to actually give an experience as to how we were, how we ourselves would like to be treated. So I won't make you name the uh, crazy ant that works at <laughs> NAB, um, but is there treating it like family? So mm -hmm. uh, how many people work at NAB? And don't say so, half of them. <laughs> <laughs> good good, uh, good ad addition. Uh, I mean, totally, we're uh, a little over 500 people globally. So we have, I think it's around 375 at our headquarters here in Ipswich in Massachusetts. And then we have obviously a sales organization in the US, but we also have seven subsidiaries around the world uh, that uh, add to that number and get it up uh, above 500 people in total. Okay. So, and my question following all of that was, you know, you have the family environment that you're talking about. I would imagine that becomes harder as you're a, a larger company, but do you see kind of an upper limit or do you see that large, really large companies with maybe 5,000 or more employees could do the same? That's a great question. I think it definitely does become harder the larger that you actually uh, become. But I think more of a challenge, to be honest with you, is the rate at which you grow. Um, I mean, sometimes we joke with our CEO that, uh, you know, he strives and says, you know, we've got to have double digit uh, profitable growth each year. But to us, double digit means 10 you know, not 20, 30, 50, <laughs> 75, et cetera. And I think if you're growing at a much higher rate, obviously that typically means you've got to be employing uh, new employees or adding to your headcount uh, more regularly, which means that uh, sometimes you're actually taking, uh, you know, risk with employees. They may not be the perfect match, but okay, we need to add someone quickly because we've got work to do. I think uh, at NEB, if you look across our history, we've definitely had, you know, steady but consistent 
consistent growth rather than it sort of being, you know, super growth one year and then sort of decline or much shallower growth the following year. And part of that has been, you know, adding people carefully when we need them, but also taking, to be honest, sometimes too long to actually uh, find the people who actually fit not only with the position and the needs we have, but with the company culture. Um, uh, when I joined the company a little over seven years ago, I think our average tenure was uh, 17 years in the company. Today, I think it's closer to 13 years, which is a combination of obviously adding new starters as well as we had a number of retirees leave the company. But 13 years, I think, is uh, you know still a substantial amount of uh, time to have as an average in your company. And I think by gradually adding staff, it's allowed us to a pick the right people, but also you know help them to appreciate the values of the culture we have, and then uh, enjoy the uh, benefits that offers. Right. I think that uh, people listening from small companies will really appreciate what you just said as a way to think about how they plan their growth and the value of maybe taking it a little more slowly for the long term. Mm-hmm. Value of you know as you say, finding the right people and then having the time to incorporate them into your company culture rather than, you know, taking the risk with people that aren't quite the right fit and you're growing so fast that culture gets pushed aside and it's just get it done sort of environment. Correct. I know when I joined the company, and I actually say this to uh, any new members of the marketing or sales team here, he actually said to me, you know, think of your um, you joining uh, NEB as a uh, marathon and not a sprint, you know, so don't join the company and think, oh, there's all these great things I can change on weeks one, two, and three, you know, take your time, you know, understand how you can actually communicate and to some degree get buy into those ideas such that, uh, you know, they're going to be more successful versus it being if you like forced on somebody from the outside so to speak right and i think that's good advice so let's uh let's move on and and to today's topic that we're focusing on which is the buyer's journey so i've been an neb customer it was a long time ago um I, I I may have mentioned this in other podcasts. I whenever I talk to somebody from NEB, I remember looking in their cal- in their catalog and calculating the cost of a gram of a lambda vector, which was some you know I was in school and it would have been it's some millions of dollars because you're selling such <laughs> tiny amounts of it, but which is that man. But I want to talk about. So I have an idea of what um, the, I think the buyer's journey looks like for an NEB customer, but how, how does NEB see it? The buying journey. That's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, in fact, we were doing some exercises recently to uh, try and map out this journey ourselves because, I mean, it's something you know, I guess, to some degree, uh, but, you know, very rarely uh, or, or maybe historically before sort of buyer's journey, became, you know, became a, a sort of topic of uh, great discussion that it was actually documented. Um, I think the not surprising thing is that journey is actually a very good word for a relationship that NEB has with its customers in that it's not a trip because it tends to be longer in nature. It tends to be, you know, more involved, more, hopefully more enjoyable than, uh, you know, just somewhere you go perhaps uh, for a quick day trip. The other, the other aspect, however, is journey is not necessarily a good word for it because when you think about a journey, you start somewhere and you end somewhere, which means by its nature, you know, it's a uh, final. Uh, in time. 
when we were thinking about uh, the customer's uh, buying journey, you know, we came to the conclusion very quickly that it's definitely not linear. Uh, it actually has many, many different sort of uh, spikes or uh, as it became touch points with it. And customers come into NEB, they uh, have a interaction, then they go again, then they uh, come back for some other aspect of either the same uh, purchasing cycle or a different uh, question. And there's many, many touch points that actually make up uh, that uh, journey. And the conclusion we came to is that any one of those touch points obviously is important and you want to make as, as large and a, a, an important impact as you can, but it's the sum total of those uh, touch points that actually makes up that uh, journey or better put the total experience that the customer has with uh, your company and obviously its brand and we became you know very focused on the fact that the sum total of those touch points the total journey the total experience really can be a source of competitive advantage if you use every one of them as an opportunity for the customer to actually both experience you know uh, a good quality interaction, but also learn more about you. We also came to the conclusion that uh, many aspects of the journey or many aspects of the touch point are not an opportunity to actually upsell to your customer. I think too often, you know, I've seen whether it's an app, whether it's, uh, I don't know, an interaction on the website, you know, you know you've know, you got this, it doesn't say as overtly this, but you've got this uh, message saying, are you ready to buy yet? You know, are you, you know, here's the price, here's the what have you. Um, and I think that for us is not necessarily the way we like to interact with our customers. We want to support our customers to actually answer their scientific, their research questions, their research needs. And then when they're ready to buy, we're ready to take the order, but also, but really nurture them through that process and provide them the information and uh, details they need such that they will buy from you based on the experience, but when they're ready. Right. So, I, I really like that. Honestly, I'm thinking of United Airlines when you talk about oh, yeah, oh, being yeah. asked to buy something at every touch point. That's right. Yeah, I'm going to check it in. It's uh, I think you have to you have to press no thanks about five times to get your uh, boarding pass these days. You know exactly. So yeah. you guys are the antithesis of that. And I like how yeah. you talk about multiple touch points because because of course any customer of yours probably buys multiple different products and mm -hmm. many times throughout their career. Let's talk. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was just say one point of that. I, I did some uh, research recently about uh, frequency of a particular product uh, family. I won't uh, give the full details here, but it was very interesting to see that customers were only buying that product. Uh, some customers, anyway, were only buying it once every two to three years. Uh, and although there was connections with that customer, that was actually the, that was the only product they actually bought from us. They were very happy, very loyal, but loyalty of this was you know you couldn't actually judge it unless you looked probably over a 10-year period because uh they were only buying so uh so infrequently interesting yeah and of course you have there are many possible touch points but i have a few that i'd like to talk about today and just have you describe you know how you see them fitting in and what uh, what you think about when you think about the experience of each one of these things so mm -hmm. let's let's start with the one i I know the best from way back when, and that is, of course, the legendary NEB catalog. How do you <laughs> see that fitting in? 
Yeah, your... no, it's a good description, the legendary catalog. Uh, you know, any bees catalog, um, you know, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, of course, but uh, I think I could argue that it was content marketing before the phrase actually even uh, existed. Uh, any bee in its history was almost uh, anti having a sales organization and developed the catalog to do very much uh, a lot of its selling for it. So our catalog, for anybody who's not familiar with it, the first uh, two-thirds of it are a more traditional type of catalog, you know, list of the products, prices, specifications of those products, etc. But the last third is what's called a technical reference guide, and that has uh, a multitude of different information as to how to use the products that are in the catalog, but also how to carry out many, you know, basic uh, procedures and methods in molecular biology. And, uh, you know, when I'm out visiting customers, I'll very often see very old copies of our catalog. And I'll say to the customer, you know, would you like us to send you a new copy? And they say, and then they show it to you. And there's all these post-it notes and dog-eared uh, pages. And they said, no, this is, this is, I use this every day. You know, I'd never find the new pages I want in the new catalog. And they really do use it uh, that way. And I think, you know, you forget sometimes when, um, you know, you've got uh, gloves on at the bench or maybe you're in a part of uh, a university where there's not great uh, uh, Wi-Fi reception that, you know, you need that paper catalog to quickly check a, a particular uh, technical piece of information uh, to be able to uh, use that product or use the protocol that you're carrying out. So our catalog is uh, very important to us. Um, you know, we continue to actually uh, uh, produce it every other year. Uh, we're currently working on the uh, uh, 2017-18 uh, version of the catalog, which will come out uh, March next year. And um, uh, although I probably would estimate that we probably, our mail list shrinks by about five to 10% each year, just as, you know, younger scientists, uh, you know, use the web to replace uh, some of the aspects of, of the catalog. We're still producing, you know, tens and tens of thousands of copies uh, every other year. And we get requests for sometimes for uh, 30, 40 catalogs, uh, which are not used as traditional catalogs. They're actually used as a teaching aid in uh, high schools or undergraduate classes where they'll say, you know, here's a, I don't know, a, a, a plasmid, you know, work out the restriction sites using the catalog uh, in there. So it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, a very valuable tool that uh, uh, has historically and even today helps to differentiate uh, NEB's focus on science and support for the research community uh, through its, its use. Yeah, it's a great story. And it is content marketing. You, I don't think there's any argument about that be even before content marketing had a name. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you were starting out and very in the early days of restriction enzymes, right? And I don't know if you were... Um, one of the original producers. Um, but at some point, a restriction enzyme is not a hugely differentiated product. I always want to be careful when I say that to somebody <laughs> because I realize there could be other things around it. But um, that is how you differentiated yourself by not only providing the information about the product, but yes, here's how to use it. Here's how other people are using it. Here's what works. Here's our recommendations. Mm -hmm. So yeah. much valuable information around it, which really is where the value 
Yeah, I'd be I'd be wrong not to say that you know we have the largest collection of restriction enzymes, most recombinant restriction enzymes, most uh, enzymes that work in one buffer, and all those sorts of things. Nice. But, but I would agree with you: the support tools and the expertise, whether that's in our catalog, or even uh, you know databases like Rebase, which is basically a, a database of all the restriction enzymes that have ever been uh, discovered, not just those that are available commercially, uh, are tools that sort of you know help. Um, uh, researchers to you know understand it's not just a, a consumable but it's actually a, a product that there is technical information and resources going in to help them use it not just uh, reliable and every time but actually understand the data they get from it right so i have to ask about you know if someone were to get a new catalog mm-hmm. it, i'm assuming there's new content in there as well besides products and Correct. I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking about sure. the person who wants to uh, move their bookmarks from the old <laughs> one to the new one. Yeah, no, good question. I mean, we obviously you, there are new products, and uh, as a consequence, new chapters that get added in, in the front uh, part of that catalog. But we also every year do look at uh, you know that that technical reference guide. Uh, you know, we send out uh, surveys to our customers to try and assess you know parts of the catalog that are valuable and pit parts that uh, are not so valuable. Unfortunately, we very rarely get feedback to take things out, which means, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you can't always reduce the number of pages that you would like to. Uh, but we have tried to uh, think about how we connect it to the website. So, you know, uh, obviously, you know, there's a finite number of pages you can put in any any document like that. So, you know, we add, we add uh, you know, shortened URLs where people can find additional information, not just on our website but on, on other uh, websites as well, as well as uh, we've actually been experimenting for the last uh, probably 18 months or so with uh, uh, digital uh, media, you know, ebook type uh, devices to try and see if there are other media that I'm not going to say replace the catalog, but certainly supplement it, um, you know, because, you know, people. People learn in different ways, you know, and uh, whereas, you know, we're talking obviously about a print uh, and paper uh, tool here, there are other tools that can be used. So how do you make that uh, print more dynamic? You know, you embed videos in it, you embed uh, embed, uh, voiceovers to know, you know, what, uh, you know, how do you pronounce a particular term or what does a particular term mean? Uh, Animations that uh, bring uh, a protocol to life. Um, And although, as I say, I, I don't know whether these would ever replace the catalog, uh, at least in in the uh, short to medium term, it's critical that we experiment with those types of uh, media. And we have a tool we call uh, NEB Pubs, which is, uh, you know, exactly that, experimenting with different media to try and find out what is valuable to scientists and what do they not see valuable. And as you know, with uh, digital media, it's easier to track, you know, which pages they look at, don't look at, you know, use in depth uh, versus the catalog that obviously we have to ask them, uh, you know, um, uh, one-on-one to find out those answers. Right. I I really like uh, the way you frame that. But one, I like the fact that you're talking about doing experiments. I've heard this concept before, and you you would think in the sciences that would be a normal (laughs) thing. But most people, or I think a lot of people, I I can't say most because I don't know, but um, don't really think about 
doing marketing things as an experiment that, you know, they do something and they hope it works, but they're not always thinking like, what could we learn if we try this? And if it doesn't work, that's, that's not a failure. That's one thing we know we don't need yeah. to try anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and rather than. No, I, to I totally, I would totally agree. I mean, um, you know, we, uh, particularly in the digital realm, you know, uh, technologies and uh, ways of interacting and communicating are advancing much faster outside of obviously the life sciences than they are within it. Uh, one of my uh, former uh, uh, managers uh, had the expression steal with pride. And what he meant by that was don't be afraid to, you know, um, take a technology, take an idea um, marketing idea what have you from another industry and reinvent it for the life sciences and see what had happened you know uh, i think scientists sometimes don't like to think that they're influenced by uh, marketing as uh, as people outside of the sciences are but of course they're all human beings and have the same sort of emotions and therefore definitely are um, but the key is how do you adapt it and 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 train perhaps that other idea uh, for the life science uh, uh, marketplace and if you don't try you'll never know so uh, you know don't put all your eggs into that uh, one new idea uh, but you know if you can have, uh, you know put 10% of your budget or have it into it and see what happens you might actually be onto a winner yeah it's um that's been a hot topic it's come up a couple of times on the podcast and the fact is that um, our customers are living in a world where uh, the rest of their whole life is digital and the, the whole mm -hmm. Amazon experience. And I, I think you might've mentioned that in your webinar, but that's how they're beginning. They're being trained to interact with companies now. So if you're not yeah. doing it or experimenting with those things from outside the life sciences, you're going to fall behind. That's totally true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously within our, within our own sort of vertical, you know, you compare yourself with who the leaders uh, actually are, but, all those, all those customers, you know, if it's search, they think Google. If it's online buying, it's, it's Amazon or whatever it might actually be. So they set the standards for a person's experience and, uh, you know, they don't care that you don't have the, uh, you know, uh, IT budget that an Amazon or a Google has. They just expect that to be the norm, you know. Right. So that's a nice transition to um, another, well, uh, several touch points. So I have a list here. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about each of them briefly. Let's, well, let's start with the web in general. What kinds sure. of things are you doing on the web that might be different or, or how do you just see how the web, your website fits in on the buyer's journey again? Or, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know whether these are all necessarily different, but uh, we definitely view NEB.com, our website, as the center of um, you know most aspects of the customer's uh, buying journey, you know we use uh, both inbound and outbound uh, marketing activities to drive. Uh, customers' interest to explore those interests further to our website. Our website, um, you know, being the scientists we are and uh, in line with the catalog is very content-centric. Uh, you know, a lot of content that doesn't necessarily directly relate to uh, our products, but gives them an experience of a company and a brand that is trying to support their research. If uh, if we have a you know a campaign around a new product, you know again we'll have inbound and outbound uh, activities to drive customers to the website to explore that new product in more detail. Uh, you know there's requests on there to or, or ways to actually request uh, samples or literature or 
more information um, uh, about that product that then goes into our sort of back-end uh, uh, marketing automation and CRM systems. But that website is is a vital part of uh, the customer's journey and a vital part of our marketing mix. Um, you know, I think the challenge, to be honest with you, we find with our website most is that uh, uh, trying to make sure customers have the ability to find what they want on that website. I remember when um, uh, a few years after I joined NEB and we started to really delve into the web analytics, we were horrified uh, to see, you know, our bounce rates, you know, which were, uh, you know, significant uh, until we realized that all the customers were very happy. They just had a question. They either come directly to nb.com or they would go to uh, Google and uh, and search there. They would come to our website. They would get the answer to the question and they leave again, you know, but that, you know, one page in and out was, uh, you know, uh, viewed as a, as, as, a, as a bounce and therefore increased our, our bounce rate. But then we realized, you know, that was that was equally important. The customer had a question, they needed it answered, they needed it answered quickly, and they left again. So there's an opportunity for us to obviously try and retain them and ask and get them to look at other content on the website. But it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, and that uh, took a lot of thinking about to realize that uh, sometimes the metrics you track out on or on on their surface uh, as bad as they might might seem. Yeah, because, uh, you know, a bounce rate can be a disturbing metric. Mm -hmm. But as yeah. you say, and they're busy, if they're coming for a question, they want to find it, they're probably in the middle of something. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> true. Uh, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, um, uh, if you visit our website, you'll know there's a number of uh, online tools there, some of which relate to our products, some of which don't. Uh, but 25% of our web traffic actually uh, uh, researchers or individuals who use a tool as part of that visit. So those tools, particularly the ones that are actually not directly related to products, you know, are critical to, you know, uh, driving traffic to the website and obviously engaging those customers in understanding, you know, what NEB is about again in terms of supporting their research needs. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a brilliant example of um, being more than just a, you know, there for products and, and, and uh, as a branding element, like we are about helping you get your job done. Very much so. Um, let's, let's talk about, um, I'm fascinated by this one, NEB TV. So in the content <laughs> marketing world, um, Joe Polizzi and others always talking about creating a media company. And so mm -hmm. that's essentially, um, what I think you're trying to do here and you know, something I encourage every company to think about, whether it's TV or some, it doesn't have to be video or audio or text. Or, it can be whatever you want it to be, but that whole idea of publishing content. So tell us, tell us what you're doing with that. Yeah, so I mean, NAB TV um, was a concept we actually came back, uh, up with. Uh, uh, I think it's about eighteen months ago, something like that. And and the idea behind it really was well. Firstly, I should say, you know, and everybody knows this. I think video is a is a very important part of the marketing mix. You only got to read all the stats about YouTube to understand the power that uh, video can actually convey. Um, but the idea behind it was a little bit. Uh, 
a little bit, a little bit silly in some regards, but if you look at channels, you know, the various cooking channels that actually exist on the, uh, on the TV, you know how addictive watching somebody follow a recipe actually is. Um, and, you know, a lot of these programs build in a bit of humor to that. So what we were originally thinking about is how do we actually communicate uh, scientific concepts that very much are, you know, in some regards following a recipe. So the idea we came up with is, uh, you know, let's convert those cooking shows into more of a scientific show. It got modified over time uh, to what we have today, which is really uh, a vehicle for communicating um, messages about new areas of science, a little bit of uh, corporate messaging about what NEB, who NEB is and how we differentiate ourselves from the competitors, a little bit about perhaps some new products, but communicating it into in a more more, um, I'll say, light-hearted way. Um, we, we looked at our brand persona, and it's very interesting that uh, uh, because we interact with scientists, we actually communicate like scientists. You know, very fact-based. You know, you know, very regimented in terms of following a protocol. You know, asking a question, getting a very precise answer, etc. But that tone uh, isn't necessarily conveying who NEB is. And NEB TV gave us a vehicle uh, to have individuals actually speak, you know, and you can see them, you can listen to them in realizing, you know, it's real people. It's uh, people who, to come back to the word he used before, who are genuine, enjoy science and can actually communicate it in a way that people hopefully find engaging and enjoyable. Yes. And I, what I like about that, the, the thing I locked onto early in your answer there was how you started out. It's not like you started out one way and you, it kind of evolved. Correct. And just encouraging companies and people who are doing this sort of thing to think about um, when you get started at something like that, you don't really know what the best way to do it is, but you will never find out if you don't start. And, no. you know, it's not – it's not the worst thing in the world to have to pivot and say, you know what, we we like what we're doing, but we we know we can do better. We're going to leave that up, but we're going to we're going to shift directions here. It, it, there's no way to to know. Again, it's an experiment until you get some response to say. These are Correct. the episodes that people love. We're going to make more yeah. of those. Yeah, I agree. I, and one thing I'd add to that is sometimes I think people think video is, you know, can be expensive to produce. I mean, we actually make uh, uh, all of the videos. We record them all in-house. In fact, the first uh, versions uh, uh, that we started to produce, um, uh, it was actually before NEB TV. We were actually doing with uh, two iPads uh, at different angles. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then just, you know, edit them together. You know, we do use some uh, third-party editing uh, expertise today but uh, but we still record the whole thing in-house you know uh, the scripts uh, are written fairly loosely uh, uh, you know all internally so it, it, it can be done cost effectively uh, um, you know and hopefully generate a return you're looking for I think that what you just said is hugely valuable because as you say most uh, many people will think that video is hugely expensive and they think oh, we can't get the quality we need on an iPad. I just ran across a, a course on LinkedIn this morning about, um, it's a photography course by what I presume to be a pretty well-known photographer who, who now only shoots on his iPhone. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and how it's changed, how he looks at the world and tells stories. So it, yeah. I, I think you're to be commended for just saying, you know what, we don't need, you know, a couple five thousand dollar cameras 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the technology obviously is driving uh, to make that possible. But uh, you know, uh, don't be afraid of the technology and embrace it because I think it uh, it can uh, do wonders to your marketing mix. And you know, that those are the videos millennials are looking at anyway, right? Everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That again, that that's the context. The comparison is you know what they're seeing from their friends' phones. So yeah, totally. Yeah, because I mean, typically you know you want them uh, short. I think uh, I read somewhere that the best engaged video. Have got to be sub two minutes. You know, I was a little bit longer than that for NEB TV, but uh, the protocol videos we all try always try to keep them at that sort of length. You know, and uh, and you get very high engagements. You know that uh, they'll actually watch the whole thing, or you know, ninety something percent of it anyway. Nice. Um, let's talk a little bit about iPhone apps. Mm-hmm. So we've had uh, um, our NEB Tools app available for, for some time now. Uh, this was actually, uh, again, a little bit of an experiment to take some of the online tools that we actually had and uh, convert them into uh, apps for uh, both the Android platform and uh, iPhone. Um, so we developed uh, tools that, again, no uh, sort of connection to selling product, but uh, uh, how to actually use our product or um you know carry out simple scientific protocols so uh we have uh you know uh, uh ones that are like little dials where you can actually uh dial in two different restriction enzymes and see which buffer to use to get the best uh um uh, digest across uh, both uh, enzymes as well as simple tools to calculate the molarity of a particular chemical solution that you're actually making up so again it's uh, another way to actually engage uh with our uh, customers and support the research they're doing nice yeah and it's it's pure support i love it mm-hmm. um how about all right now we're jumping from um small appliances to large ones <laughs> i i heard from you on your webinar with harrison wright at affinity biotechnology uh, talking about your freezer program and and how it you found a way to sort of bridge, um, maybe I'm stretching this, mm-hmm. um, bridge the gap between B to B buying and B to or B to C marketing and B to B buying. But sure. I, I feel like the freezers fall into that. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so for any of the listeners not familiar, uh, uh, a freezer program, and there are other companies that have freezer programs as well. These are ways of actually putting products that are temperature sensitive uh, directly into the labs or into the institutions uh, where the researchers, where these customers are actually located. So if you think about it, sometimes people have described our one as the ATM for enzymes, which I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Um but one of the challenges sometimes that uh, uh, companies in the life sciences actually have is, you know, at the end of the day, we are a B2B uh, industry in terms of, you know, you're interacting with institutions, with companies, and they're the ones who pay the bills versus the actual consumers. As a consequence of that, some of the ordering and um, uh, shipment and invoicing information is up at that level. You don't often, you don't always, I should say, get the information of who the end user is, who actually using that product 
because there's a purchasing agent or a lab manager who sort of uh, is that uh, name in between the researcher and the company who's providing the product. In this context, uh, because you're actually placing the product closer to the uh, end user, the researcher, the researcher can actually go up to that freezer program. And this is a description of uh, NEB's freezer programs that we call NEB now. They actually go up to the platform. They've obviously pre-registered in advance. They uh, scroll through a name or type their name in. Uh, click on that and then just put in their uh, four-digit password. That actually opens up the freezer. They can go in, take the uh, product out. They scan the barcode uh, on the barcode reader that's on the front of the freezer. So these, are, if you imagine a, uh, a freezer that uh, looks pretty similar to uh, freezers that you have uh, in other labs or even in your homes, but there's a, a tablet uh, uh, embedded in the front. And then you scan that barcode and then uh, you uh, basically walk away. And then on the back end, that uh, order gets processed and you get an email just confirming your uh, your order. Um, what customers seem to like about this is, well, freezer programs generally, the, the advantage is obviously that convenience aspect. You know, if you're uh, a night owl and you do an experiment at 10 o'clock on a Friday night uh, uh, and you run out of your precious enzyme, then rather than wait till uh, uh, Monday or Tuesday to get the product uh, delivered to you, you can go to this freezer and just, just pick it up like a corner store in many regards. Um, but uh, uh, the real sort of uh, value that uh, we have is now this gives us information about that end user. So now, whereas before I might have only known that this university or that uh, the purchasing agent there is purchasing these products or whatever frequency, now I know that uh, Dr. Smith every Tuesday, let's say, goes to the freezer and picks up uh, product X. Uh, over time, I can then actually start to uh, uh, build up a picture of this, this fictitious Dr. Smith to find what other products they actually buy uh, from the freezer over time, what um, uh, technical support calls they might be the, they might be asking us, what movement or traction on our website they might be having. And as we build up this picture, and I should say all of this data comes back into uh, our uh, CRM, uh, we can then actually uh, not only support them better, but hopefully market to them better and actually make sure that the messages we sell them are tailored towards the type of products they're using. If we can tie that in with their publications data, because we now know what uh, products they, what their name is and what areas of research they're in, we can now, you know, they take out product X, we can send them a, you know, a technical tip or an application note to say, you know, here's uh, some information about that product that you just purchased for the first time used in an application that's in your area. So I don't know if he or she is a cancer biologist, maybe we've got an application note for that uh, uh, product in cancer. We can actually, you know, make their application and their support and information about that product more tailored to their specific research interests. Beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, oh, well, we might come back to that a little bit, but just the whole aspect of, you know, building up that picture off of all of these assets, whether they're on the web or it's a freezer or something else, and really um, taking advantage of your CRM um, to know who they are and then segment them and send them relevant messages is is fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right, one more thing um, in the in the buyer's journey, and this uh, it's you wouldn't necessarily think this is part of the buyer's journey, but it certainly fits in somewhere because you're communicating to the <laughs> audience. But let's talk about the Passion in Science Awards. Sure. So the Passion in Science Awards was something we kicked off uh, a couple of years ago. Um, 
we were actually uh, uh, working with um, a couple of third parties to try and identify ways in which to celebrate NEB's 40th anniversary. And the conclusion that we came to is NEB, if you like, blowing its own trumpet about its being 40 years old was not the way to actually celebrate uh, uh, that uh, anniversary publicly and wasn't really consistent with our brand and how we want to position ourselves. So what we came up with was a concept to try and celebrate customers who actually had similar values to ourselves. And one of the great things that we find with the scientific community and our customer base and, you know, obviously our competitors' customer base as well globally is there are so many scientists who do fantastic things outside of science, whether that be something altruistic that they, I don't know, uh, they, they have a great fundraising activity to uh, support a particular disease or something like that, or maybe they actually uh, are doing, uh, going the extra mile to actually support STEM education or um, uh, they got a strong environmental focus and they're trying to actually, uh, you know, clean up, you know, simple things, make their lab more green, or maybe they've got an interest in the particular arts. And uh, we built uh, awards around uh, uh, four criteria that really celebrated uh, the passion that these uh, scientists had, not only as being scientists, but the passion they had of these other um, uh, activities that were on the connected with their science, to be fair, but uh, were slightly on the periphery. And uh, we went out to our um, uh, to the life science research community and ask people to nominate either themselves or uh, uh, their colleagues, and we then whittle that down to uh, um, a short list that we then had the NEB. Um, uh, family actually vote on. So it wasn't just a, a group of managers or a group of uh, leading scientists. We actually opened it up to the entire NEB staff to, to read the stories of these researchers and vote. And then we ended up with uh, four winners in, in each category. We actually brought them to uh, New England Biolads and uh, they, you know, gave uh, presentations around their stories and, you know, they got little awards uh, in terms of a, a plaque and things like that. They also had the opportunity to get a tour and things like that but most, what was most fascinating is how they built relationships with each other so i remember very well within the first day of having you know these 16 people together there were four or five collaborations that already spun up uh and these were individuals that had never met each other before and some of them were research-based some of them were actually um uh focused around uh you know teaching um uh, third parties, and they were very different. So on the arts section, I remember that we had uh, uh, one individual who was actually uh, using rap to actually uh, teach uh, her students about, I think it was PCR at the time. We had another one who was creating uh, um, three-dimensional models of uh, viruses to uh, help uh, visually impaired students have a greater an understanding of what a virus might actually look like. So really, really diverse subjects and, and how these came together. It was a, a very humbling, to be honest with you, uh, experience to see these wonderful individuals and what they were doing, you know, uh, outside of their uh, related to, but slightly outside of their core scientific disciplines. And then we actually had the pleasure, we repeated it um, 
um, uh, earlier this year, uh, we, we decided to do them every two years, and uh, we didn't think we could actually repeat the success of the first one because we didn't think, you know, we, we just thought maybe we struck it lucky with these uh, 16 wonderful individuals. And it was the same again, you know, totally different group of individuals, but again, great people who were doing everything from creating videos to talk about uh, how plants are cool through to uh, um, uh, individuals who were creating creating uh, art out of uh, uh, maps of, uh, of the brain, you know, uh, truly, truly inspirational people. Beautiful. So uh, I have a couple, many thoughts on that. So with regards to the buyer's journey, what I like about this award idea is it fits at, it's kind of the end and the beginning of the buyer's journey. So for existing customers and even um, it's, an extra high touch that fits with your brand, uh, caring about science, but more than that. And then, of course, it's an awareness tool. I mean, I'm sure you publicize this, and the scientists themselves, the award winners, of course, are sharing it with their colleagues. And so then that that comes back to the top of the funnel, and people who don't know you might say, oh, who's NEB? What are they about? And um, so I really like how that works at both ends. Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, we were pleasantly surprised that uh, social media actually played a bigger part in the second awards than the first one in terms of attracting uh, the group of individuals that uh, eventually went on to uh, win the awards. But we do, uh, we did, uh, uh, we created a sort of single um, uh, video of all of the interactions with the first set of awardees and then in the second uh, uh, set which we modified a bit. We actually have Im individual videos on our website of all of the presentations that uh, uh, the individuals gave, and uh, you know it, it's just a, a great way of communicating more about them. To be honest with you, and the great things that uh, scientists uh, uh, can accomplish. Um, but you know it also fitted very well with our own core beliefs of uh, you know um, you know you know you you should always treat others like you you want to be treated. Yourself and this sort of genuineness and I think that uh, definitely came across that uh, we built relationships with these individuals and to be honest whether they whether they were customers or are customers you know is, is secondary in, in many regards because you know that they, they had an experience here that they enjoyed and they tell tell others you know uh, there was one of the um, one of the winners this year that uh, um, you know she asked me to send me sent her some uh, actually some uh, an NEB catalog and uh, when uh, she saw the catalog she actually said oh uh, I've spoken to my uh, other professor in my department who actually does a biotech course and he wants to actually use it so can you send me another 10 sort of thing uh, so you know that message gets out there you know no, it's small numbers I agree but it's the personal touch that I think uh, is uh, so important to us absolutely so we've gone a little long do you have a minute for one more question Sure. Yeah. As long as uh, as long as everybody is hanging in there. <laughs> no, I think we're getting good value today out of this interview. It's fantastic. Um, so let's tie this all back um, to the digital part. And you talked a little bit about this with freezers, but and, and maybe you've already answered it. Um, but how does NEB use the data that it collects to to then continually improve the customer experience? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, um, all of the sort of uh, different touch points that we've uh, discussed, uh, maybe the catalog a little bit less, but really form uh, a digital ecosystem. You know, um, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on about there's many different uh, touch points that make up the total customer experience. For that experience to be as valuable as it, as it uh, needs to be to gain that competitive advantage, you have to understand how they interact. And in our case, we bring a lot of that data back into uh, our CRM so that we can actually understand how all these touch points uh, connect. I'll be honest with you, the interpretation of that data, um, I don't want to say it's big data, but it's 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 moving in that direction. Uh, is you know, it's really a work in progress. Um, you know, there are certain touch points that we you know can analyze the data and we can use it actively. There's other ones that uh, are not to the level that, that I would like yet. But the ultimate goal of, of bringing all this data uh, together is you know personalization. I believe strongly that uh, the eventual direction of, of marketing is personalization and being able to market the support services, the products, whatever it is that uh, you interact with the customer about uh, is tailoring it specific to them as an individual. Now within life sciences and this sort of complication of B to B to C, whether you truly get one-to-one -one marketing, I don't know. You know, I think that might be uh, a challenge, perhaps uh, uh, that is for is, is for the for the next generation of marketers. But certainly, personalizing it to a greater degree, so understanding whether you're a uh, cancer biologist, you know, using molecular biology tools versus an immunologist uh, using, I don't know, uh, uh, ELISA type tools, or you're a lab manager, a purchasing manager, and you're located in this university or that company. I think we have to get closer to understanding how those uh, groups or segments of, uh, of customers think and act so that you become more personalized. And that uh, in itself, I think I'll, uh, I'll add to the competitive advantage you can gain beautiful so um this has just been a fantastic episode i really appreciate you taking the time to share all this fantastic insight with us about you know your customer's journey all the things you're doing the things you're experimenting on how it all fits in with your branding the entire story so um i can find those passion and science awards on your website right you can, yes, yeah. yeah so both I'll, the uh, original ones and the uh, second set, uh, you should be able to find that. Great. So I'll put a link to those and, of course, the, the general website on with the show notes of this episode so that anybody wants to look at those videos and see what you're doing can do that. Um, yes. Andy Bertera, yeah. thank you so much um, for helping me out with this. No, thank you, Chris. I enjoyed the discussion. It's uh, always fun to talk about uh, the marketing activities and get uh, feedback on them. And if any listeners uh, would uh, be interested in talking further about these ideas, as well as brainstorming other ways to uh, improve best practice in our industry, be happy to talk to them. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your time, Chris. Uh, you bet. That ought to spark some ideas for improving your customer's experience and get 2017 off to a good start. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, tell two friends, won't you please? And drop me a note to chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. If there's someone I should interview or a topic you want covered, let me know and I'll make it happen. 
Until next time, this is Chris Connor wishing you an excellent new year.